Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There isn't a quick fix if you're grieving someone who's died or you've lost your job or you've broken up with your partner. But also to kind of do the things that work for you so that it is painful. The transition takes longer than you want. It's a sort of movement between allowing yourself to grieve and emote and feel the pain of it and then choosing to do things that are restorative like watching telly or going for a run or going for a walk with a friend being connected, you know, reach out to people that are close to you, so let them support you. When love dies, it's the love of others that makes a difference. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020. How can we reduce stress, enjoy life, bounce back from setbacks and get in flow? My guests will be sharing their expert advice and I hope you join me on the journey. Our theme music is courtesy of Mindstream. Visit mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep, relax, focus and move or find their music on any streaming platform. Let's crack on with the show. Hello and welcome everyone to a very special recording of the Not Perfect podcast live with the Arts Club. Today I will be chatting to Julia Samuel. She's a best-selling author with her book Grief Works. She's also one of the leading voices on managing grief globally and today we are speaking about her new book This Too Shall Pass. This book couldn't have been released at a more relevant time, I'm sure you would agree. I turned the pages this week and I was completely reassured and soothed by the beautiful writing 
as she addresses topics so many of us want to sweep under the table. But today we're going to bring them out and talk about how we can get better at managing change and challenges. This episode is supported by a brand I've been a huge fan of for years, Aromatherapy Associates. I passionately believe high quality essential oils are really effective in soothing the mind and body. So to launch their latest shower oils, a line that gives you a full mind and body experience in the bathroom by maximizing the therapeutic benefit of oils, we are teaming up with them to celebrate and encourage us all to take five minutes from our day to reset, refresh, and look after our spirit. There is no easier and better way to do this than jumping in the shower. So if you'd like to find out more, and I really encourage you to do so, have a look at the show notes and you can find out more about their oils by visiting www.aromatherapyassociates.com. Anyway, let's get into this interview. What is your favorite quote at the moment and why? My favorite quote at the moment is um, from AA, that to um, accept change, change the things I can and have the wisdom to know the difference. And the reason why I think why that's particularly important today is I think we've all had a kind of full sense of our power to control and influence what happens to us in the future. And fundamentally, the big things in life, life and death, and the birth of children, we can influence, but we have fundamentally have no control. And I think the paradox is the more we accept the things that we cannot change, the more it is that change will happen. And that when we kind of resist change and kind of try and force our way to beat it, then we actually beat our heads against a brick wall. So if we can kind of surrender to the things that we can't, we can't change, then we, ha- we can embrace our day and have much more kind of gratitude and pleasure for what we do have rather than kind of resisting what we can't control. Why do you think so many of us struggle to surrender? It's partly the sort of changes that have happened in society in the last 50 to 100 years. So, you know, if you 100 years ago when you got ill, basically you died. In 1907, there were seven kind of prescriptions a doctor could give somebody if they were ill, and the rest were sitting with them and witnessing. The point of that is that we believe that science and technology can fix us, that the minute we get through a hospital door, everything is going to be all right and everything's going to be sorted. And then the big institution of religion where we did surrender our power to God and that we followed the rules of that, those rules have completely kind of collapsed. There's much less belief in in organized religion. And all the institutions that gave us rules have become much more fluid and less certain. We're kind of looking for new rules, but also we think that we we influence it. So people all, you know, I think the the 12 rules of life, that book that was so, Jordan Peterson was so successful was because we're all kind of looking for a new 10 commandments. But we, and also technology is obviously the sort of fourth digital revolution has given us a sense of agency that you can um, book an aeroplane ticket, you can order a car, you can do so much online. You kind of think that you can rule the world. And the pandemic has shown us with all the powers and science and knowledge that we have, it has completely 
pull the world to a halt? It's funny to me, in a way, because the only certainty we have in life, I suppose, is death. But yeah. yet we are adverse to un even wanting to think about it, talk about it, or, you know, it's not like we were born with any tools to be able to handle it. Why do you think that is the case? And what? how do you kind of process that, I guess? I mean, there are lots of different reasons, but I think the principal one is that we have a kind of magical thinking that if I don't think about it, if I don't talk about it, <laughs> it's going to happen to other people over there, but it's not going to happen to me. And this yeah. sort of fear that if I do talk about death, then I'm going to make it happen. So mm. I just close my eyes, then it's not going to happen. But of course, the reverse is true. And it's true of change as well. So people, you know, when they do um, become bereaved, if they haven't had any of the important conversations, if they've never thought about it for themselves, they suffer so much more because there's much more room for regret. They feel like they're doing it wrong because they don't understand what grief is or had, had no exploratory sort of understanding of what it's normal to feel like. So they're kind of thrown onto this very alien planet that they don't like and they want to get off, but they're stuck on. And I think change is the same. You know, the research shows that change happens every seven to 10 years. You know, the seven year itch is a real thing. And we're wired to adapt. We're evolutionarily wired to be able to adapt, but we like control. So those that resist change and block it have less joy and less success in life and find it harder when change hit, hits them again, which it always will. Do you know why we are biologically wired to have a kind of itch for change every seven to eight years? So, so it's really, it's life. It's not that we're wired for it, is that we tend to change jobs, move countries, get married, get divorced, have a baby, age, go into a different phase of life, your children leave home or they become teenagers so it's just that's how life is that that every seven to ten years there is a change this is why I think your work is so important and I've recommended your book to so many people like so many other people have because you're rebranding discomfort what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently <laughs> well my personal one is that uh, some of my children who are you know late 30s, 39, down to 31, have moved back home. And we all revert to our kind of childlike self, however old we are. And so I became the mother of a five-year-old. And I was sort of telling my 39-year-old daughter to, to wear a coat because it was cold outside. <laughs> <laughs> and she would say, Mom, I've got three kids. I've got a teenage daughter. Will you shut the fuck up? <laughs> so the, the, I think, darling, put your boots on. Um, so the habits are so ingrained in us, and we have to kind of wake up and you know allow those habits to lessen and new ones to develop. How do you define happiness? I mean, how I define happiness is that it isn't this thing of sort of smiling and being happy all the time. I think happiness is you can have bursts of joy which come from moments of real kind of significance. Normally the small things, it's not like the big 
party normally there's those moments of joy are when someone you haven't seen for, i mean like now it's like thirsty in the desert having a hug from a friend that gives you <laughs> real joy like oh my god i've been oh i need that so much i think there are two aspects of happiness one is when our internal belief and in who we are and where we are is aligned with how we're living so that there's a an authenticity so that we're moving through the world where we face difficulty, but there isn't an internal um, off-kilterness in the first place. And the other big thing I think is, is the love and connection to others and having love is having purpose and meaning. But the biggest one is love and connection to others. I think that's where happiness resides. And that's what enables all the other things that we care about. Work really matters. All sorts of things really matter. But if we have good connections and good relationships, don't have to have masses, then um, we're much happier. So I would love just to kind of really dive into this. Why did you want to write this book? And why did you choose to focus on change after grief works, your first one that was so brilliant? The main reason was because everyone who's kind of come through my door as a client in the last 30 years, whatever their presenting issue, whether it's they had a difficult childhood, whether they got a broken heart, whether a child died, whatever the reasons, the underlying connector between them all is that they had a problematic relationship with change. They didn't like mm. what was happening to them. And they thought they were doing it wrong. And that somehow the rest of the world was just you know, gliding on and having a good time and they were um, failing. And that once they could see that actually they weren't failing, but the process of change is painful and the things that you do to avoid the change and block the change are over time the things that do you harm. So once they recognize that and that they need to support themselves and be self-compassionate, and kind of know themselves rather than distract themselves, then they could sort of internally get on track with where they find themselves to be. I think that I just want to make a note of that. Know yourself rather than distract yourself. I mean, to me, that is such a powerful point because, God, are we addicted to social media or if it's Netflix or it's, you know, watching Tiger King. I mean, whatever it is you know, we're basically in a candy store everywhere in this modern world. What can you do to not fall into the trap of distraction and actually focus on this work, which is very introspective around like healing and, and being able to manage change? So the reason I wrote the book, having witnessed that, was so that people would begin to find out for themselves um, how to know themselves. So there isn't a kind of Within my book, there are lots of examples and lots of stories and then lots of research and sort of guidance. And what I wanted was for people, say it was you, to take from it and say the eight pillars of strength, the kind of guidance and rules that fit for them to enable them to have a life that works for you. And so the first thing is wanting it, like choosing, like I want to be different. I kind of recognize that my habits are thwarting me, they're not working for me. So the first one is kind of recognizing it and that that awareness kind of then be nice to yourself. So you kind of work out for yourself, what are you looking for? Is it love that you're looking for? So am I looking in the wrong place for love and connection? Is that what I really need? 
Um, you know, am I hope thinking that Instagram is going to give me some feeling of well-being or no. You know, I mean, it is what I'm looking for, but it isn't what I'm getting. And then sort of work your way through that. And then you can develop new habits. It takes six weeks to develop and embed a new habit. It's the slog. You have to kind of give it time. Which I guess, again, that's something we probably naturally are not that good at. We're all quite impatient. We want to be able to feel fine when we experience these changes. We, because the thing with, with iPhones and stuff, and this is true of me, is that we want our internal selves to be as efficient as the kind of app. You know, I want the fast tracker <laughs> that is going to Marie Kondo my feelings. So I'm going to have pink feelings, blue feelings, and purple feelings. And I'm going to open my drawer, and they're all going to be tidy. And then I'm going to be clear. And then I'm going to move forward. And I'm going to, you know, all the words are crush it, isn't it? I'm going to crush it. I'm going to beat it. I'm going to, you know. And we're not made like that. We're messy. We're chaotic. We cannot Marie Kondo our feelings, but we can pay them attention. We can listen to them and then they can direct us into a version of ourselves that, that works much better for ourselves. For people that um, don't find meditation hard or find kind of slowing down hard, towards the end of this book, you, as you were saying, these eight pillars are really useful. But which advice do you find yourself giving out the most, I suppose, to your clients who are experiencing change? I think probably if I only had one piece of advice is a way of slowing down is taking exercise is that because uh, when we're on alert, which we are through change, it sets our system onto a kind of um, vigilant looking for danger. Where's the tiger system? And that switches off our capacity to think and process. So you're just looking for sight, sound, touch, smell, like where, where's the danger? And if you take exercise, it um, tells your body you've flown. Like I've, I've flown, and so it releases the cortisol. Your, your vigilance goes down. It increases the dopamine. And then your capacity to actually think and make good decisions and actually connect with other people goes back online. Because when you're on alert and hyper, you don't connect to people either because you're not wired to do that. So, I mean, the first time I ever see clients, I say to them, take regular exercise and don't argue with it. JFDI, just fucking do it. Put it in your diary. <laughs> and, you know, don't say I'm going to do it when I feel like it or I might do it on Tuesdays and then I might change it to Thursday. You just have to make it a habit that you give yourself a treat after, but it changes your life. It definitely lowers your anxiety. It's the equivalent to a low dose of antidepressants. It's good for everything, wow. your memory, your mood, and your capacity to manage difficulty. It needs to be 20 minutes, five days a week. And it's free. And you also talk about self-compassion, which um, when you're writing about it, it feels so doable I feel that um this word compassion can often get quite kind of fluffy and suddenly you're like love yourself like this is all quite confusing what does that mean you just have such a practical kind of answer to it I would love for you to kind of explain a bit more how you present self-compassion I mean I find most of the words around psychotherapy and well-being incredibly annoying because they're so patronizing and so kind of la la <laughs> and most of it is common sense um, so I loathe all the words that I use all the time, but there isn't another one. 
So I see, I see self-compassion as treating yourself as well as you would treat a friend. So, you know, you probably have a, sh I swear all the time, by the way, you probably have a shitty committee that is telling you you're an idiot, you're a fool, just do it, don't make a fuss, get on with it, you know, grit. Would you speak to a friend who is suffering like that? Would you say to your friend, you know, stop making such a fuss, get on with it? No, you wouldn't. You'd say, come out with me, have a cup of tea, let's go for a walk. Mm. You know, what's, ma what's the matter? What's upsetting you? And you'd pay attention and they'd feel better afterwards. Um, so that's what self-compassion is really, is treating yourself as kindly as you would a friend and being aware of what your shitty committee is, aware of what's going on, you're sort of ruminating over in your head. To the point of you so brilliantly rebranding what pain and discomfort can mean to us, I would love to talk about post-traumatic growth because that is such a nice reframe from something I think we can probably all relate to being post-traumatic stress how do you change how do you pivot from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth i don't think it's really a choice so the the kind of precursor to post-traumatic growth is that it never diminishes or kind of lessens the level of the trauma or the level of the loss so it acknowledges how kind of difficult and scarring and overwhelming the trauma was and this research came first of all for things like the marshness disaster and the Paddington train crash, and then lots of different disasters that have happened. But what researchers found was the predictor of outcomes for any major loss is the love and support of others at the time and after the death. Mm -hmm. So that has to be in the kind of system for someone who's gonna have post-traumatic growth, that they're well supported. And then what those people found was that they absolutely felt the pain of the loss, but they also find that it shaped them in ways that they didn't expect, that it changed their perspective in life about what mattered. It informed them that they were more resilient and robust and had more capacity than they had ever expected, that they thought they could never survive anything as awful as, say, the Marchioness disaster. And that then changed their whole relationship with themselves and the world that felt more meaningful, more connected, um, and they felt stronger. Do you think we are dealing with more change now than we were decades ago? Or because the, this, if you look at the statistics of mental health, they are skyrocketing upwards. So how do you understand those figures? Do you think we are more stressed out than, than we were? Or do we think we, do we have more stresses? There isn't a hierarchy of suffering and pain and that each generation, I think, has its own particular difficulties that it faced. My parents had the, the war that they faced, their parents, the First World War. You know, every generation has the difficulties that it faces. But I think the culture influences enormously our relationship with those changes. And, you know, identity is at the heart of change. And so how we identify the different aspects of ourselves, the different identities that we have, is enormously affected by change. And in the last 50 years, there has been more change than there ever has in society before. You know, like I said, in the institutions of marriage, religion, gender, work, um, the digital revolution, every aspect of life has changed faster and more in the last 50 years than ever before. And it hasn't, you know, women going to work, that has never fully been sort of acknowledged. I think mm. the things that are really good about 
millennials and your generation is that there is much more psychological understanding and much more psychological knowledge than there was in my generation. So, you know, stiff upper lip, I think, has a place. But, you know, you have more emotional intelligence. You're better able to name what you feel. Your generation were parented and protected more than any other generation before you. So I think some of the stats have increased because people are owning it and naming it in a way that they haven't before. And I also think that there is an enormous, and now even more than ever, more change than ever before. And that always brings, uncertainty always brings anxiety. What's interesting about the war is happiness levels, so I believe, were actually highest. Yeah, after the war. Do you think that Corona could do the same for us and actually increase our happiness levels? I mean, I, I honestly don't know. The thing that I understood from the stats from the war is that as human beings, again, with this thing of identity, the the kind of touchstone of identity or the key to identity is the need to be loved and to belong and then having purpose and meaning. So I think from the war, everybody had the same enemy. They wanted to win. And there was this real, I mean, there must have been difficulties and, and tricky, all sorts of difficult things that have slightly been glossed over. But I think there was a kind of collective coming together that people, you know, my parents talked about is, you know, some of the best times of their life, which is bizarre to think of, really. But And now I think there has been that in communities. There's been more connection. There's been more kind of response and a real shift in people's attitudes. The thing that I'm, you know, if we hope to have a rebuild that is a really meaningful rebuild, we have to continue it. You know, in 2008 and 9-11, so the crash in 2008, 9-11, everyone said we're going to have a kinder, gentler world after this. And neither happened. So there has to be a will to make the change happen, to make the rebuild better. And whether that's there, I don't know. What's your advice for people wanting to create long-lasting changes? Because I've spoken to a lot of people who've said, I've learned so much. I don't want to go back to the busyness I was. You know, I'm spending so much time with the family. I love it. We now cook in more. And obviously, new normal is going to start and we're going to be pulled back left, right and center. How do we keep the positives of this time? Maybe there are five things that you mentioned, four or five things. You have to kind of prioritize one or two that really matter to you the most and that you set yourself those intentions. And you develop a sort of habit and a structure and you give yourself a kind of pat on the back when you've done it. And then that embeds the change for you. But the the big thing is to support yourself and get the support of others. So say your thing is I'm going to stay in and cook every Wednesday or not every week, but I'm going to cook in once a week. You then need to create people around you to remind you, like I'm going to do this, will you help me do this? That you kind of start experimenting and um, trying different recipes so that you you kind of create it as a curiosity and rather than a kind of punishment that you have to sort of force mm. on yourself, that it becomes something you feel excited about. I thought it was really interesting, your exploration, and we spoke, we've spoken about it briefly on change and identity and your words on social media, because that's something I, you know, that my, my generation, I 
was like born essentially onto a social media platform. And so not only is there kind of like this crisis of identity of your physical identity, but now we have a digital avatar that arguably is even more important than your physical identity because people meet the digital avatar before your physical identity. I mean, it's a bloody nightmare if you ask me. <laughs> and I really loved this point you made and really be great if you could share it now which is kind of the intimate self and the like this kind of projected self but even just making that mental separation going back to identities that we have these different identities and at the heart of identities the need to love and belong and I think that's what we're looking for in social media that we we're looking to love and belong but there is also a contradictory part of our evolutionary identity is that we want to stand out. We want to be different in order to evolutionarily attract a mate. And that's a wired um, response in us. And that gets very much fed into on social media. So my kind of take on it is you want to um, have different identity in social media selves. So you have your personal intimate friendship identity where you can be fully yourself where you don't wear makeup, where you can fart, where you can be your best self and also kind of dance and do a jig and do the splits and have fun. All the versions of yourself be sad with people that really know you, that being known as you see yourself is the sort of definition of being loved. So that's where you get that love and connection from and the sense of belonging to a tribe where you feel that you can be who you are and that fits every version of yourself, your gender, your work, all those different identities. And then you have this public persona, which is a version of yourself. So it's not a fake, but you protect yourself from exposing too much of yourself, which then comes and back and can bite you in the bum because you can put too much exposure in order to get to stand out and be different or to get connection and an online forum is not the place to get true connection you can get connection but don't think it's going to feed the hole in you the hole in you is fed by physical relationships so i mean i've just started instagram i started um in january and i'm more and more addicted to it which is truly annoying um <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm a i'm a quite addictive person so i am I started off like not being very interested and now I'm much more hooked than I was. And so then I have to kind of set rules for myself. You know, I can't look at it. I look at it once in the morning. I can look at it lunchtime. I look at it in the evening, that kind of thing. Because otherwise I literally just get lost down the hole and also looking for love in the wrong places. That is not the place. I really like the people. I feel like I know some of the people. Also, that is quite distorting. So I'm a bit confused, but also clear, if you know what I mean. Do you think that you can do this introspective work alone? Um, or do you think that it is so much kind of more effective when supported by therapy? I think that, you know, there isn't one panacea for all. I think you can learn a lot about yourself by journaling. And journaling, there's a good Harvard study that shows that journaling is, a, is as effective as therapy. My kind of best therapy, I think, is walking and talking. Like walking with a friend where you're kind of aligned, your body's moving, you can have time where you're in nature or you're outside anyway, if you're on the street, um, and you have time where you don't talk, time where you can kind of vent or think about how you feel and then have a kind of treat afterwards. I think that's incredibly therapeutic. I think if you want 
a kind of cut out intimate relationship that's just for you where me as the therapist or whoever the therapist that my job is to focus on you and you want that in your week because you're having too much difficulty and you just don't feel that you can do that with your friends or your family or you're too troubled I think then that you should do that so and there are different times in life when different things work and there's a lot of online therapy now which you can get for free you know texting therapy and um, which I think is incredibly supportive. I think young people use a lot of texting therapy. Samaritans now have as much texting as they do telephone. I would love for you to talk to us about your COBRA meetings because yeah. they are just quite genius in all honesty. And I really want to start um, setting them up in my family home too. If you wouldn't mind taking us through, what is a COBRA meeting and how, they ha- how have they been helpful during lockdown? Again, maybe starting with myself is that I was like everybody else that I to begin with I was shocked I didn't really feel anything I didn't really believe it and then I had that sort of I woke up four in the morning with that Jaws music like the and I luckily I now have enough awareness that I kind of knew I had to listen to my own medicine so I got up I went for a run I you know did the things that soothe me and then I thought I have to create a new structure because my old structure is out the window and part of my new structure is how do we as a family now that so my daughter and her husband and her three kids um, came into lockdown with us, how do we kind of do this together? So COBRA was her idea is that we need to have a COBRA meeting where we have once a week where we each name what we're feeling, do chores, you know, who's going to do lunch, da 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 and who's going to do the shopping and the cleaning and all of the chores. Then everyone named a positive feeling um, and a negative feeling and what, what they were worried about. And then they um, played a piece of music. Oh, wow. And so everyone meeting played a piece of music that um, for other people to listen. So it was ended with a kind of breathing and a piece of music. And it didn't last more than 20 minutes. So it was quite straightforward. And it was a very nice kind of package that calmed all of our system down. Because in, in a family system, everyone is affected and everyone is affected differently. So you need to, what you need to do in a family system is have open and trusting communication and a way where you recalibrate once the whole system has been tilted off centre by the change. I love that about everyone bringing a, a song they want to play. That is such a nice, bright idea um, and makes kind of, you know, that time where you may be meditating so much more fun if you're kind of listening to something someone's brought. What a great idea from your daughter and you. Um, so we've got some questions from the audience, uh, which is great. Uh, Gala asks, Julia, what is the best piece of advice you wish you had known in your 20s? I'm stronger than I realised. I think I was always quite frightened and I think I've learned that I'm more robust than I thought I was. I I think all of us are stronger than we think and fear is a feeling but don't conflate it with the fact that it means something's going wrong so that I may have been, I was fearful and I thought it meant something was going wrong and now I know that I can have a feeling and it doesn't necessarily predict the future. What is the best way of journaling? Is there a specific technique? 
No, so the, the, the guy that did the research was James Pennybaker at Harvard. And they found that people who journaled went to the doctor less, um, were happier and did better in their exams. So it really works. He didn't say that it's better whether you do it um, with a pen and paper in a, in a notebook or, or into your phone, onto your notes or onto your laptop. I personally think um, it's better to do it with pen and paper because there's something about physically seeing the impact of your handwriting that connects very personally to you. But the way that you do it, it can be gobbledygook, it can be 10 words, it can be a scream. It's just putting your feeling and your thinking in the moment on a page um, really works. Another, actually, this this goes on to another question. Other than your own book, what books do you recommend the most? And what are you reading at the moment? So I've just read a book by Jonathan Haidt and someone else, but I can't remember his name, which was why we have cocooned the younger generation and how it doesn't serve them well, something like that. I think Bessel van der Kock's book, um, The Body Remembers, about neuroscience, how the body and the mind are connected, is a lot about trauma. I think that's really good. I've got tons of books. There are some books on my website that you could they could have a look at. Jules asks, what advice would you give to those whose loved ones have mental health issues? So I think you need to kind of recognize that you suffer alongside them in a different way and to intentionally find ways of supporting yourself, that you need to get support for yourself, if you're, particularly if you're living with them, but also if you're not living with them. And to recognize the limits of your responsibility so that you may have a responsibility to the person you love, whether it's your sibling, your parent, your partner, but you can't be responsible for them that they have to be responsible and, and for their own lives and that you can't protect them from their suffering. So you can love them with it and support them in it, but it, you're, you can't fix them. That isn't in your gift. And so kind of release yourself from this worrying, kind of looking for a fix, looking for an answer, because you can't find one, because it's not yours to give. Wow, that really hit home. That's so beautiful. Thank you for that answer. Another question, how can you deal with stress when you are social, isolating and alone? I think it's really hard. And of course, your level of stress will be increased. Connection online is better than no connection at all. So have Zooms or house party or WhatsApp or video. I think video is better than, actually not necessarily better than audio. So make sure that you have connection to others. JFDI, the exercise, because that lowers your stress levels. Research shows that altruism, doing something for other people when you feel powerless, um, not only makes you feel better, but you feel more connected and it, it boosts your immune system. So maybe it's yeah. getting food for a neighbor or ringing uh, someone who's lonely, but definitely thinking of others helps you. The other thing that helps it is intentionally choosing to do something that soothes you. So I do things like everyone wants me to watch like terrifying stuff and things about death because that obviously is my special subject. I like modern family. So I watch <laughs> things that are short and make me laugh and are happy. The happy endings. I do not like unhappy endings. For anyone who's really going through the ringer right now, like whether they have, you know, managing grief, 
like severe heartbreak, what would your advice be to anyone going through that time of that immediate change point? I mean, the first would to say, I'm so sorry that you're having such a difficult time. Kind of acknowledge how painful and difficult this is for you. And in a way, similar to what I was saying before, that there isn't a quick fix if you're grieving someone who's died or you've lost your job or there's a big, you know, your heart broken, your partner, you've broken up with your partner. But also to kind of do the things that work for you so that it is painful. You know, the accommodation, the shift from the past that you had, that you wanted, and the present and the future that you're in, the transition takes longer than you want or that you would choose. It's a sort of movement between allowing yourself to grieve and emote and feel the pain of it, and then choosing to do things that are restorative, like watching telly or going for a run or going for a walk with a friend, being connected, and that you move between the two. But the, the biggest predictor, as I said before, about trauma of outcomes of loss, whether it's a living loss or a loss from death, is the love and connection to others. So that, you know, reach out to people that are close to you. So let them support you. When love dies, it's the love of others that makes a difference. And the other thing, if it's around death, and this is a long haul, but the pain is kind of recognizing and adjusting to the physical loss of the person present in your life. But also to remember that continuing bonds, that the love never dies. The relationship continues in your heart and in your memory and do things that um, create touchstones to that memory, whether it's cooking your mum's, you know, spaghetti bolognese or wearing your dad's watch or writing them postcards, that that's important to keep those relationships alive by remembering and connecting to them. So my parents would always say, um, forget and move on. And now we say, remember and take them with you. It isn't the same with boyfriends and jobs. For them, you, you have to kind of reduce the import. You have to acknowledge the loss and the level of the loss, but don't follow them on Instagram. They need to become less in your mind and your heart, not more. Honestly, I just, I could cry. I just think this is <laughs> so brilliant and soothing. And I just think we all want you to be, you know, like in our family. <laughs> um, everyone, this is the most amazing book this too shall pass julia where can we find you on social where can we find your book um if you would if you wouldn't mind directing us that would be great so um i'm on instagram's julia samuel mbe and facebook the same julia samuel mbe and i have a website www.juliasamuel.co.uk you can follow the links on my website to help and support so there's lots of those my eight pillars of strength are on my website but also on my website are links to amazon and waterstones to buy either book well thank you so much for the arts club for hosting this brilliant chat for everyone that has come to watch live and um if you would like for anyone to listen to this chat it will be on the not perfect podcast uh, from sunday um so thank you julia for your time spent with us your wisdom advice and amazing storytelling it's been truly brilliant it's been such a pleasure talking to you That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. 
You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.